Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is late June, and uh, yeah, Tammy, how are you doing? AJ, I'm good. Good, good. Happy Juneteenth. It is Juneteenth today. This will not be coming out on Juneteenth. It'll be coming out in two days on Wednesday. But um, we have a great conversation today with the executive director of the Workers' Justice Project, Lihia Gualpa. Um, we're talking about the victory that was secured. I think a lot of you must have read about it if you're listening to this podcast. It is a minimum base salary or a minimum base hourly rate for for delivery workers in the city of New York. It's just under $20. You know, at think that you can imagine what the prices were like or what even the way that salary was classified before this type of legislation passed. Um, a completely weird and opaque system, right? Where like some places like uh, add in tips and some places totally. don't and like, you know, nobody really tells you what you're getting paid. And at some point you just get something deposited in your bank account and you're either happy with it or you're not, <laughs> right? And um, it's it's been interesting to me to watch over the past few years. Tammy, I'm really curious how you feel about this, but um, there's a lot of uh, attention paid on labor fights, right? Um, where, like, so yeah. for example, here at UC Berkeley, we had the graduate student workers strike, right? Or we have, um, right now we have WGA and the, and the writers, right? Um, and that- The big a, strikes. Right. And that- these things are incredibly important. And yet it also sometimes feels that like the future of the economy might be that like these might be some of the last big strikes that we see for because there's so much stuff being companies are just kind of not wanting to have employees at all these days, right? Like that there's an increasing gig economy that's happening and that the fight of course is going to be to not allow that to happen in a way that is exploitative. And yet it does seem like saying that, oh, we're, we're just not going to have that happen seems to be difficult. Like, that's a difficult thing to really sure. believe, right? Um, yeah. And so, like, I wanted... And I think it's also, like, about disciplining the tech companies, you know? Because right. it's like, I feel like the Uber taxi stuff and Uber Eats, the, these models are the things that, for people like us, are things we see and we experience in our daily lives. And I think by addressing that labor situation, it's also just sending a message to kind of tech generally, like you can't really do that. Right. Um, so that also seems, it seems like there's this kind of like symbolic thing about the June victory for the delivery says, and I do wonder if there's going to be knock on effects like in taxis or other parts of the app economy. Right. And it's like, their argument is always the same. The tech companies, right. The tech companies are just like, well, you don't have a boss here. Right. And mm -hmm. like, you don't have to check in and punch a clock. You can just do whatever, you, do whatever you, you want. want. And if you want to work yeah. some more some weeks, it's like the guy I watch on, I don't watch him anymore, but there's a guy I watch on TikTok who uh, lives off the grid in Colorado, you know, and he uh -huh. has a Tesla. And he's always like, oh my God. He's always like, I live in a tiny home and all I have is a Tesla and I charge the Tesla with these solar panels and I make enough money from delivering on Uber Eats that, uh, Really? I can sustain oh my, my life. And my question to him is he always makes it seem like he's living in the middle of nowhere, right? Like in one of the, like literally 50 miles from anyone. I'm just like, 
who are you delivering food to? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's actually like in an ADU in Denver. You yeah, know? that's what I mean. He's like he's like 15 minutes outside of Denver, like living in somebody's backyard or something like that. But he like is very clever about the camera angles or something like that. <laughs> but, but um, but like he's what he's expressing is the dream of the gig economy worker, right? Which yeah. is like, oh, well, I, you know, I don't have to work and I don't have a mm-hmm. boss. He has this gigantic donut tread on me flag in his um and so there's almost like this libertarian idea about it right like don't tell me what to do i'm just gonna do this app and i'm gonna do my little amount of work and like that's what the hustle economy is too in a lot of ways right which is like well you just have to do this with like ebay and buy this stuff off this thing and then sell it on here and then you'll be making a (laughs) hundred thousand dollars a year for (laughs) for no work um but like the reason why those types of things exist is because it is an alluring type of idea for a lot of people, right? And yeah. that traditional careers in terms of the way in which people used to think about them, obviously, or don't have the same valence as they had before. And it does seem like the stuff that Lihia was talking about in our conversation are so germane, not just to delivery workers in New York yeah. City, but like, how do you organize? How do you organize any of this? You know, totally. um, here in Berkeley, the delivery workers tend to be um like i think almost everywhere right they tend to be minorities right like it tends i think there's mm-hmm. a lot of african immigrants a lot of middle eastern immigrants who are doing it and uh you know it's like the question of like okay how do you reach these people how do you reach these people from different backgrounds these people don't go to a place where they like check in in the morning right so it's hard to like get them to even know that one another exists right and for a lot of them they probably don't even want to know that the other person exists. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like there might be some sort of sense of solidarity with people who are doing the same work, but like, there's also a, Hey, I'm kind of doing this because I want privacy and I also want to make money without having to sort of go into something else. Right. And so it's a huge challenge. And I think it's the most interesting, at least to me intellectually is the most interesting labor challenge out there because it seems to be the one that's going to be, like if there is like a preparation that one needs to do for the future, that this is the preparation that one sh- one should be doing. I don't know. How do you feel about that? All that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it reminds me of certain other kinds of fights like home health care, you know, all of these sorts of pl- things where people are totally on their own. Right. They never see anybody. And also it's like structured that way. Right. Um, yeah, I think like what's striking to me about like what she talks about is how fast this all happened, like in terms of the organizing, because they basically started organizing that based delivery workers, like at the start of the pandemic. And within a couple of years, like already had legislation rolling through city council. And so I mean, like, yeah, I wonder what you think about that. I mean, to me, that tells me like, obviously, there's a lot of stakeholders who like care about this workforce. And, you know, the company's basically can't leave. Like they're going to have to deal with, you know, the fact that the workers are making demands on them, but they're also not going to exit New York city. Right. (laughs) And there's enough kind of politicians who are amped up to like address (laughs) this issue, you know? So um, it seems like there was a lot of, I mean, obviously the pandemic was incredibly tragic. There have been deaths of delivery workers. It's like, it's no joke, but there's also all this other kind of infrastructure that is in their direction, I think. Yeah. Well, it seems like one, like, Politicians are probably thinking about it in this way. I think some of them probably sincerely do care about the workers. And then the other ones are like, we can't have like a shutdown of this because everyone's yeah. going to be pissed off, you know? Yeah. Like it's similar sure. to, um, you know, like basic, I, it's one of the things you learn in studying politics or at least looking at local politics is how much like local shit actually kind of matters to 
people, right? Like it, yeah. it is kind of like if you don't do garbage pickup on time and stuff like that, that's when people start getting mm-hmm. super agitated. And adding to that infrastructure right now is these apps, mm-hmm. are these apps. And the problem with it is that garbage pickup is run by the city, right? But this is not, right? And that, so the city, like at the beginning, probably felt like it had no control over this. It had no control over, you know, expanding number of workers that were out there on e-bikes or on bikes or, you know, doing deliveries however they could. And that the city, I think, is incentivized in its own way to get this under control mm-hmm. in a way that they can sort of at least monitor it, right? Like you, yeah. otherwise, what you what do you That's have? Right. You have like complete, you have potential chaos, right? Like you chaos, have. Chaos, yeah. yeah. And it's even fa- like just the traffic stuff, right? Right. Like, that's the like part I'm most. That's, that's the part I'm <laughs> most interested in, honestly, is the traffic management side of it. Because, like, <laughs> I I don't know if people who listen to the show is, but one of my very quiet, big political things is just getting cars off streets. Like, I hate. I just I drive, but I really <laughs> I hate cars, and I, yeah. you know, I always dream of cities where there are no cars on certain streets and that people can just ride bikes and stuff around them. And like, mm-hmm. I think that the New York city in itself is they have bike lanes. They have all this sort of stuff. It's better than it was, but it's just, I don't know. It's like, it's really dangerous. You have to change the city. If you're going to have this giant fleet of e-bikes in several ways. Right. And that, um, yeah. unless you want to try and put the genie back in the bottle, like you have to actually mm-hmm. change the city. And they can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? And like that, it's like it's a it's a fascinating situation, and it's um, you know, I don't think that these delivery companies are particularly great, you know. And I find myself wishing that there was like a civic option for a lot of this type of stuff, yeah, or that it was just restaurant by restaurant, right? But it also feels like we're way past the Rubicon on a lot of this stuff and that these apps are just going to be part of our lives. And I think what I appreciated about our conversation with Lihia was that it kind of assumes all that, you know? She's very right. pragmatic about it, right? right? Yeah. Right. How's everything else going on in your life before we jump into this conversation? I'm good. I'm heading down to D.C. to do some surprise political reporting that I won't bore you with. <laughs> it's very exciting. Are you going to be doorstopping <laughs> Congress people? Being like, Tammy Kim, yeah, yeah. Tammy Kim this is the, my new beat. Tammy Kim from The New Yorker. Senator McConnell, Senator McConnell, you're like chasing, <laughs> chasing him down <laughs> into his office. <laughs> I'm so afraid I'm going to end up in one of those like press photos with just like the fucking like journalists like sprinting alongside like some terrible That'd politician. Cool, though. No, that's a cool, that's a good one. The one that you don't want is the one where you're kind of like in the background and um, you know you have like a note notepad out like you're like picking your nose like a fucking dork you know and you're wearing (laughs) like you're wearing like a pantsuit and everybody's like who is that oh my god so terrible some like ill-fitting blazer sweating (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) a blazer you just bought at like the you know at the at the whatever next to the near the train station in dc and you're like <laughs> oh my god jay that is truly like my worst nightmare Listen, I'm telling oh, you, you know you can prevent these things just you know just just buy 
make sure that you have your wardrobe planned out and you won't be in that, <laughs> you won't be in that photo. <laughs> or, or like there's oh like a, there's like a televised press scrum or some politician says something that goes super viral and you're like sitting in the corner. <laughs> I know, exactly. There, there was a period during oh the Trump God. administration, do you remember? I think it was Ashley Parker of the Washington Post kept like went viral a couple of times because she was making funny faces during press for during Trump. Oh my God, hilarious. <laughs> you should do that, you know? Like, oh my God. Funny. You could leverage your, that into like big viral fame. <laughs> They're like, damn it, Kim makes another disgusted face at the Biden press conference. I'll be going viral for a good reason, finally. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited oh, um, for this new chapter in your reporting life. It sounds kind oh of fun, God. though. I don't know. Like, Come join me, Jay. Mixing it. No, no, I'm not leaving California. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically at a, I'm only going to get on a plane once a year type of sta- spot right now. Um <laughs> But uh, okay, well, that sounds cool. I'm looking forward to whatever you, you figure out down there. So <laughs> let's start our conversation here. Um, a little bit of background, a little bit more background here. I think that will help with the conversation is just that uh, Lee has started um, organizing these workers with Workers Justice Project in 2020 during the pandemic. So it was pretty recently. Um, and, you know, the victory that they won uh, was pretty hard fought not just with the city but internally as well there was a lot of infighting you can read about it we'll link to an article about it but um you know it was nastier than most infighting Mm -hmm. i would say is is amongst like public campaign i think and very very public including counter demonstrations counter organizations um and we talked to her about all of that and she was very candid about it and so we appreciate that as well so without further ado here is our conversation Leah, thank you so much for joining us. We thought we would start before we talk about the campaign just by asking a little bit about your background. So can you say a little bit about your immigration history, how you came up, and how you started Workers' Justice Project? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, Tommy. Uh, well, I, so I, I'm an immigrant myself. I migrated here in 1995 uh, with my family um, to New York City, mostly to the Bronx. Uh, and since then, I grew up in the Bronx since the age of 10. And right after college, I started uh, getting involved in worker centers and workers' rights organizing, which I've been doing this work for the past decade, um, which is mostly doing workers' rights organizing, uh, doing some innovative uh, policy changes in the New York's, in the, in the city of New York, uh, and um, and truly inspired by the leadership of workers who keep on showing us day by day that what's possible um, in in one of the biggest cities in the country. Wow. And I know when you first started Workers' Justice Project, you were mostly working with day laborers like in Bensonhurst and in Williamsburg, where one of your offices is. Um, But, you know, we had you on the show, obviously, to talk mostly about the delivery workers campaign, which you guys just won. Um, Can you talk about starting to organize the delivery workers? I think it was in 2020, right? So it was very much a kind of pandemic project. Um, So why? How did they come to you? And why did you decide this was a workforce that you guys wanted to spend more time organizing? 
Yeah, as you said, we Workers' Justice Project since um, since the beginning has been organizing mostly gig workers um, in construction, like day laborers, even domestic workers um, in that gig work economy, which most of them work in workplaces that are more temporarily uh, less le- in employment status is always very complex because they're they're between them being classified as workers and independent contractors. Um, in 2020, uh, when the pan- when New York City got hit by the pandemic, um, worker centers like Workers Justice, we really had to become from like a work traditional worker center to emergency response center, uh, trying to respond to the most immediate needs of our communities and our members who mostly were going unemployed, transitioning out of um, workplaces from construction to other service, other service industries um, where they can find means of survival. Um, workers' justice, since the, we knew it, I think, um, you know, every time the New York City, New York City is hit by a, whether it's pandemics or climate change crises, we know that uh, immigrant workers will always have to be in the front lines being first responders. Um, in the case of the pandemic, what we notice is that most of the workers who were working in construction, cleaning, and other industries were actually being left out without a job. Uh, many went, went unemployed without accessing unemployment insurance, others being completely excluded from a social safety net. Uh, and what we started doing is doing a lot of cash relief um, turning our centers in food pantries, uh, distributing masks. And that's when we started noticing that many of our own members and leaders were turning into jobs that for the first time, which happened to be food delivery. And one of our member leaders, who happens to be Gustavo, started having conversations about expanding our essential services to delivery workers who happened to be first responders of the pandemic. And it was at that moment when we started distributing masks, started doing cash relief, and started realizing that New York, that New York City was highly relying on food delivery on, 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 on platforms as a way of survival. And mm-hmm. while the entire cities, the streets of New York City were empty, the people who were out there risking their lives uh, happened to be deliveristas or or food delivery workers. And that was like, I think, a op- eye-opening moment for the organization that we needed to respond. We needed to make sure that those that were first responders had not only essential resources, but really had a safe space to have a conversation about what issues they were experiencing. Um, and that was the moment where uh, deliveristas came uh, to the organization to have conversations about what was happening in the industry, that while they were doing essential work, um, doing putting their own lives on the line for to keep New Yorkers fed and safe, they were actually um, experiencing a whole new level of exploitation and unsafe working conditions. And the government was completely going blind, was, was pretty much ignoring and... Uh, we see the, gov- the many of them felt ignored by the city agencies, city government, um, felt completely ignored by the apps when they actually had specific demands. Um, and even by consumers, many of them have expressed feeling as non-existent 
Um, and, and that was, I think, a unique moment for the organization to really have an opportunity to create a, um, you know, the, to create a safe space for workers to organize. Yeah. So the, the guys who came to you first, these were people who had maybe been doing day labor or other kinds of work before, like in construction. And when all that dried up, they started turning to the apps. Yeah, it was a mix of both. It was okay. a mix of all, all our members who were day laborers turning into food delivery. Um, and there was also the majority were coming out of the restaurants. That's what we started mm-hmm. noticing. Okay. Uh, Many okay. of them gotcha. were working in the restaurants as, as cooks. line cooks. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw this number that uh, there's 65, estimated 65,000 people working in food delivery in New York City alone. That number, you know, it's not surprising to me, but, you know, that's a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I've always been curious about this. You know, when the pandemic was happening, I tried looking into this myself through some reporting. Um, and, you know, like how big of a shift was it in the labor market, right? Because, like, I think the story that, people tell is basically, hey, everybody started relying on these apps because they didn't want to go outside because they were, you know, they were afraid of catching COVID or they wanted or, you know, they had sort of normalized work from home after a while. Um, Like how big of a shift was this in the labor market? Like, do you have an idea of how many people there were before and how many there were after, you know, like how how much did the shift uh, the gig economy that 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 you're speaking of before? I mean, the numbers uh, that we use are 60,000 deliveristas are based on the number of um, e-bikes are registered that are more commercial e-bikes. However, that's just an estimate. We we definitely think that there's more. I mean, delivery apps during the pandemic grew their market share or their, their, their what they were producing was 200% 200% more in revenue. Right. So obviously the market significantly grew. Uh, that meant more workers were out in in the streets doing delivery work. I noticed something um, too, like which was like be, kind of before the smartphone era, like the delivery workers that I was acquainted with were employed by like one restaurant or two restaurants, you know? So they would like go there every day. They had a relationship with the boss. It wasn't like great employment, but they were mostly on traditional or e-bikes and they kind of knew who their employer was, right? So they knew like how much money they were going to get and then tips on top of that. And then I think like with this, you you guys have been kind of working in this space where like kind of all of that is gone now. Like basically everybody is just working on the apps. They have multiple employers because of that and they kind of don't know there's no transparency, right, with their wages? Yeah, I mean, with this new industry that it's more on online platform delivery, mm-hmm. workers have completely lost their protections as workers um, and have been have been classified now as independent contractors, which means that they're excluded from, you know, basic labor protections like the minimum wage laws, health and safety. Even as independent contractors, they have to buy their own equipment, which can cost anything between just starting off in the industry close to twelve hundred to five thousand. Um, so, aside from losing basic worker protections, they have to actually incur a large amount of money just to start doing this work. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, you know, I, we, I, it would be great if we could sort of lay out the the conditions that led to this great victory that you that your organization did before. So you were talking a little bit before about how um, 
at the during the pandemic, as there is this explosion of delivery workers, and as people are shifting over, and as these companies like DoorDash were and Uber Eats or whatever are sort of piling money together, and you know having stock investments and everybody, you know, sort of exponentially growing their revenue and their value, that the workers were feeling ignored in a lot of ways. What were some of the specific complaints that were that that? Or what were some of the big areas of concern amongst the workers that you were speaking to? Uh, safety was one of the biggest. Uh, many workers, um, when we started organizing, we started um, having conversations about whenever they got injured or a worker died, they pretty much were left alone. Um, um, no, no one in the in the app delivery industry will take any responsibility, and they felt completely isolated, ignored from government. The other one was uh, lack to lack to basic protections like access to bathroom. Uh, during the pandemic, when everything was shut down, many of them had issues accessing a bathroom to do their basic necessities. Right. Um, wage theft was huge. Um, you know, the other issues was bike theft. So when their main equipment was stolen, pretty much they had nobody to get protection or ask the companies to actually help them cover the cost on on buying new equipment. Um, and these were some examples, right, um, of what they were experiencing on the front lines while doing this work during the pandemic and it's still to this day. Mm-hmm. And Leah, like, how much were they earning? Because the New York City minimum wage is like fourteen bucks. Um, but these guys, like, how much? Uh, you know, were that? I guess, like, how much were the apps telling them they were entitled to make? And then, kind of, what was the reality of what they were making? We did a research in actually twenty 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 one, where we first time uncovered that deliveristas were making about seven dollars and couple cents, excluding tips. Um, per hour. And we're talking about workers that had to work from early at 7 a.m. to cover the morning shift all the way to 9 to midnight. Um, that, that was that's what like this, before expenses also? Yeah, that's before, okay. yeah, that's before yeah. expenses. Um, but I think what many people don't know is that the real problem is that these apps actually don't pay them a wage. Um, many times when they charge a delivery fee to consumers, um, that doesn't really go to the delivery worker. That goes to the pockets of the multi-billion dollar gig companies. Um, what actually most of these companies do is they offer them a base pay of a dollar, two dollars for a three mile, four mile ride. Um, mm. And then actually forces workers to mostly rely on tips as their main source of income. Um, you know, I think that one of the, uh, I think the delivery worker space has always been interesting to people who think about organizing and think about ways in which, you know, a type of uh, solidarity networks can be built, right? Because it is a unique industry in the sense that you have immigrants from very, a lot of different places, right? Like you have... Uh, like immigrants basically from every continent everywhere in in the world and that none of them are rich, obviously. Right. And that um, a lot of them have challenges like speaking English or whatever, right. That, that they have similar challenges, but they are very different culturally in terms of where they come from. And that like, that there is this idea that perhaps if one can organize a space like this and that 
it will present a type of roadmap on how you can organize outside of kind of like ethnic enclaves or out, or even on a broader level. And I've, I've always been interested in this personally, just because of those reasons. Like what, what challenges did you face? You know, because there's like, like, uh, there's what, there's Chinese delivery workers, right? There's, um, obviously Central American, Latin American delivery workers there. Uh, they're Asian. just sort of, yeah, they're South Asian, they're delivery workers from Africa. Like they're the, mm-hmm. like, these are, this is about as disparate of a group, maybe outside of like even probably more than even like an Amazon warehouse, for example. Right. So like, how, how did you begin to sort of reach out to different groups? How did you, how did you sort of meet this challenge? Yeah. Something interesting about the Deliverista community is that even though there's multiple languages, something that I I think I'm I'm still inspired by it and what really has led to I to build a strong organizing movement has been that they use one language um that we at workers on known, but they, they know how to I think beyond speaking it, showing it in the streets, which is the solidarity language. I have seen deliveristas without even speaking the same language, when somebody steals a bike, they all show up <laughs> kind of as a, a, as to 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 show solidarity or support. Or when somebody gets injured in the middle of the streets, you see a lot of deliveristas kind of, you know, trying to support each other. Um, and we saw more and more solidarity happening during the pandemic when deliveristas started b- building their own WhatsApp groups as their way of protecting each other, communicating each other, um, being able to stay safe with each other because there was nobody else. They were, they were left alone to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we came to organize, we discovered all these WhatsApp groups. We discovered all these amazing level of solidarity that existed in the community that I, it, it made it easier when we organized the first march to bring workers together uh, because they knew what they were dealing with and they knew they had to support each other. Um, And that's how we ended up bringing all these networks to build Los Deliveristas Unidos or Delivery Workers United, because each of them, even though they might be from different countries, speak different languages, are working in different areas of the city, they're experiencing the same issues and they understand it and they live through it. Um, So organizing has been easy. The challenge really happened is when, when we started organizing and actually passing legislation that was very unique, um, uh, blindsiding the companies and the companies realizing the power workers were getting in the city. Um, I think we started noticing how we started seeing most companies to push back and mm-hmm. start dividing workers, building messages of division, building attacks against the organization that has been organizing the last year. And we're still recovering from it because there is a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misinformation about what this victory is and really means for workers. Um, And we we have learned that, you know, these companies have a lot of power and they're using technology and they're using what they have built in order to um, communicate now with workers in a way that it's more divisive Um, and pretty much you know, being able to divide and avoid workers advancing historic protections. Yeah, maybe we could just 
take a step back just to like lay that out a little bit for folks. So in 2021, you guys started putting, pushing through the New York City Council, like minimum standards for workers, like wages, access to bathrooms, like charging stations, right? Sort of basic stuff for the industry. Um, I know Jay and I read that great Verge investigation from 2021 about how workers were also like, as you were saying, banding together to kind of like try to act like the police, like community police for one another around stolen bikes and other offenses like that. Um, But as you were just saying, like, so the apps were fighting back. And I know this, like when I was covering like Uber and Lyft also, like just not the Uber Eats, but just like Uber and Lyft, they always send messages to their workers through the apps to like encourage them to contact politicians and fight against like unions and worker centers that are trying to launch campaigns. So as I understand it, like that's kind of what started happening, right? Like basically you guys had this campaign and then the app companies really came out in full force against you guys and also turned workers against the organization. Um, So do you want to just say like a little bit about that? Like, what did you start hearing? When did you start seeing things turn? Yeah, it it happened. I would say started happening when the, when after we passed the minimum pay and the implementation for the minimum wage, um, started to happen through the first mm-hmm. hearings we started seeing companies like relay which is the smallest in the market actually okay. buy workers testimonies uh, pretty much against the minimum pay we started uh, seeing relay sending messages to the workers saying minimum pay is really bad you're going to see less money you're going to be deactivated there's going to be less jobs using the fear tactic and pretty much the old school uh, uh, you know anti-union busting um, tactics um, and then we started seeing other companies like Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber send the exact same messaging, right? Which is creating more fear about the idea of setting minimum pay standards and the fear around you're going to lose jobs. Um, you're going to see less tips um, because now we have to pay you a, a living wage. What you're going to see is less deliveries. Um, this is going to pretty much take away your flexibility and and that started happening on messages, emails, um, text, text directed to workers. Some of the companies um, started holding even meetings with workers to try to divide and put workers against workers and workers against the organization. And that happened recently, a year ago, um, to try to prevent for the minimum wage to to go in full effect, and they they pretty much won um, mm-hmm. at some point because they they delayed the minimum pay for six months and managed to actually even lower the initial yeah. minimum. And Mayor right. Adams, it was, like, it was did supposed that to too, be twenty four dollars, and it ended up like a little bit under twenty dollars. Right, like that was. Yeah, yeah. It created more flexibility. There's two structures of pay. There is the hourly pay, which they lowered it uh, from $23 to $19. And they created a new structure, which is actually not bad. Um, it, it could have been better um, by including the waiting time. But they're now mm-hmm. doing the second method of pay is $0.53 cents per minute. That only includes... Um, the trip time from the moment they accept to the moment they deliver. It doesn't include the waiting time, which we still believe it should be paid. Um, So, but at least we're setting, I think it's huge because New York Mm -hmm. becomes the first city in the country to set a wage floor for industry that didn't have that before. Mm-hmm. Do you see, uh, you know, um, New York City is so specific in some ways, but also obviously 
you know, the place where a lot of these ideas come from and then they go out across the country. You know, what I was thinking about in terms of New York City when I was looking at a lot of this was that there was some parts of it that felt a little bit specific to the pandemic and that it felt specific to New York City just having a lot of delivery, period, right? Um, a lot of people don't really have kitchens or they don't really cook very much. And then during the pandemic, it became so normalized to order every single one of your meals out. Um, you know, like, obviously, this these companies are nationwide. Uh, they're relied upon everywhere. They have a what I would argue is almost a monopolistic hold on a lot of industry and on the restaurant industry that I think is actually quite toxic. I mean, you can't just be a Chinese restaurant in a city anymore that gives out delivery flyers and you get to, you know, you have to basically contract out a lot of your stuff with these companies. Um, I know there's some legislation in other States, but like, I know that as executive director of this place, you must get a lot of messages from people outside of the country like where, where where do you see this going next or what do you think is happening next in this in this struggle i mean i definitely see other cities following um our lead i i already see seattle um right. fighting to set um a minimum wage standards in the industry i we have received a lot of interest from san francisco which is another place where there is a high demand of delivery uh in dc as well so we're seeing this, um, I think, victory being a, a inspiration for other gig workers in other parts of the country who are living the exact same challenges and issues, which is no pay, um, you know, safety being one of the biggest issues in industry. The other one is that most workers have to put a, it's it's a very expensive job for many of independent contractors. Operating cost is really high that economically, even for some workers, don't even make sense, um, depending what mode of transportation you're using. In New York, most workers are able to get by because they use bikes. Um, but for those that drive cars, I mean, gas, the you know. Yeah. Parking right. tickets, it's, it's the operating cost is really high that even for deliveristas and delivery workers sometimes don't 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 even make sense and it's not even worth it doing it. Mm-hmm. I was curious about like the in terms of the backlash, like I know one of the favorite arguments of these companies and some workers too, right, is that being an independent contractor actually is flexible and there is like good stuff about it, right? And that maybe like in the traditional labor movement and maybe people like us are like always talking about misclassification and like, it's better to be an employee in terms of your expenses and stuff like that. But, and, you know, I think like the Biden administration's like also interested in, right. Trying to battle some of the misclassification stuff. But I'm curious if you could just like talk about that from your perspective in terms of organizing, because is misclassification like a useful thing or should we just kind of like not care as much about the legal distinction and just talk about rights and pay? Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex um, situation. Um, I would say uh, we strongly believe that all workers should be entitled to workers' rights. Um, let, let, we, we're starting with that philosophy mm-hmm. in New York that we we strongly believe every worker should is deserves a minimum wage, deserves to have um, basic ben- basic protections and benefits, um, and we should strive for it. Um, the complexity really goes into what that really means for workers and how we achieve those in an era where pretty much these companies have taken over our entire economy. Yeah. 
if have condition workers to work and live and depend on these type of jobs um, in a way that it's really hard to avoid. Um, what in New York uh, we are fighting is to set some minimal standards, but we strongly believe it should be the federal government who pretty much should intervene in redefining the classification of workers. And the other one, the flexibility, um, most workers would say that that's really a false narrative. Um, there's no real flexibility. The flexibility that most workers have to depend on, it, re it is really determined by the company, not by the worker. Uh, what do you mean by that? Like, how, do, how does that work? Because I know that like the way they want to tell the story is like, hey, some nights you don't have to work. You know, if you want to stop at six, you can just stop at six. Uh, if you, you know, like, I don't know if you yeah, play with um, your kid and yeah, you know, go to school go and, and yeah. <laughs> Wake up and take a shift, that type of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, for most deliveries in New York, flexibility doesn't really exist. Um, and and, and it's, it, it exists in a very constrained way that only benefits the companies. And a quick example is that most companies now are moving to scheduling, uh, which means that if you want to work, um, you have to schedule in advance. If you don't, and if you don't show up to that schedule, um, you're pretty much deactivated or get a really poor rating, which limits your ability to get work the next day. Um, or the other ways is that uh, sometimes when they cannot meet the schedules, they might be completely blocked from continuing doing this work. Um, so that, you know, the ideal flexibility that you can log in anytime you want, it's, it's, it's not really true. Um, most workers sometimes when they're offered the schedule is it's not sometimes they can choose. It's pretty much a set schedule, right? You, these are the hours available. You take it or you don't take it. And most workers say, well, sometimes we do take it and we don't have option um, of, of, of denying those schedules or those hours that is assigned for us to work. Um, can you, you know, I've always been curious about this, which is that you must have a lot of experience now understanding how these companies keep tabs on on the deliveristas and how they you know how they sort of get in contact with them how they talk to them you know how they even like you said hold meetings with them right now it seems like i think from the traditional consumer from the person who doesn't know much about this that what this is basically is it's a giant app and if you want to do it you can sign up if i wanted to do it i could just like go sign up and drive my car around for for a day and I could make a little bit of money and that's, and nobody would, I wouldn't talk to anybody from the company, right? I wouldn't have any sort of interaction with anybody and that at some point some money would be dropped in my account and I would be happy about it. Like what is the actual way in which these companies structure this type of thing? Are there, are there employer, are there employees from the company who are responsible for a certain number of, of workers? Is there, um, are there contracts that everybody has to sign? I, I, I realized this because um, I had to go to an office at some point and it was next to the Uber office in Oakland, right? And I saw how big it was, you know, and how many people were lined up. And I was like, oh, this is like a full process, you know? And like people like had yeah. their citizenship papers, everything like that. Like there was, it seemed like it was a much more intensive thing and that the the myth that you just download an app and you just start is, you know, I'm pretty sure it's in, you know, it makes it feel like it's more flexible and more like, Hey, this is the fun part of it. You know, just, you're already driving your car anyway. You might as well go out and drive for Uber. Um, like what is the reality of that? Yeah. I think there's a couple of things. One is 
um, most workers don't really get to interact with a human person. Um, it's pretty much many would say, you know, the algorithm is really my boss who dictates where I go, what type, what type of route should I take, um, where do I pick up my food or where do I deliver the food? Um, and pretty much have dehumanized the ability for workers to have that conversation with somebody to talk about the issues that they're facing. And when they do have an issue and they call somebody, I mean, they do get access to operators who pretty much have a playbook on what to say and what not to say, right? And pretty much their main concern is, did you deliver the food or you didn't deliver the food? And if you didn't deliver the food, just pretty much, you know, shoot us an email or, um, and most of the companies are moving, even not having that operator available to workers, which is pretty much just mm-hmm. send an email or put a picture on the app, send it to 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 the email and somebody will get back to you. Um, more and more companies are moving to this ability where they most workers don't have to actually talk to anybody, right. um, that there is a person whose the communication it's pretty much limited to email or the phone app or the phone operators, which now are just more in writing communication, which becomes a big problem for what some of the issues that we're experiencing at Workers' Justice is that when a workers don't get paid or a worker has an issue, they come to us um, because they feel that they're, they're not they're not getting the response and their issues not being addressed. Um, and you're right, they have you know, dozens of, of, of people who are working in, in these apps who are, you know, managing the algorithm, um, pretty much their part of their role is not even to address workers' rights issues, is to make sure that the algorithm is, it's working at its best by rating who is the best worker, who should be or should not be receiving the orders, um, and to ma- to be maximizing the profit that the companies need to be making or they're 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 set to make that year. Um, and you know, workers are treated as disposable labor, not as not not as human beings. Um, and the, the communication is becoming less and less. And I would say, you know, it's pretty much dehumanizes that Deliveristas are actually workers and in, in human beings doing this work. It seems like for the the food delivery apps, it's like even worse than with Uber and Lyft, the taxi part. Because Jay, I wonder if what you saw, like some cities when Uber and Lyft came in, they like would have this registration requirement right, where drivers right. of the taxis would have to go to the office. Yeah. But it seems and like the for car. the app, yeah. yeah, for the delivery guys, it's like way even more attenuated than than for the taxis. So I find that really fascinating. Um, Lee, I was curious, like you described you guys as a worker center. And I think like our listeners probably know that's like not a union, right? But it's kind of like something similar to a union for workers, especially who aren't eligible for unions. Um, I was curious, like kind of along the lines with what Jay was saying about like the specific knowledge you've gotten from now attacking tech companies. Is there a different kind of model for like a worker entity that needs to exist when you're talking about workers who are united by this tech language or this tech app? Because previous to this, most of your guys' campaigns weren't dealing with that, right? We're just dealing with folks who came in through day labor hiring hall or we're on a a street corner trying to get work and stuff like that. So yeah, have you, have you, do you think that there's like some new form that you guys are kind of adjusting to? Yeah. I mean, this whole three years has been sort of um, developing a new way 
organizing workers because as you, you're right that they, their their boss is not the traditional you know boss in a construction site yeah you can go chase them down and yeah, right. yeah. so these are like you know multi-billion dollar corporations um that are that are not even based in new york um mm-hmm. the second one is that the way they the, the algorithm right is what determines their working conditions so you know, the level of documenting the workers' rights issues they're facing is, is very different. Um, the other one that I would say communication and organizing requires, you know, a whole different level of approach because these are not workers that know each other, are in the same workplace. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're using and integrating technology as well in terms of how to communicate with them. So it requires a whole new level of organ- organization, communication, and strategy in terms of how we address um, workers' rights issues. And yeah, it's different. And it's even moving us to build like what we call the Deliverista hubs, which for us has been, these these are the infrastructures we need to be creating to organize and address the workers' rights issues. Right. How do you even do that, right? It's like so many different people, they don't check in at the same place in the morning, right? Like it's not like a newspaper delivery place where you I'll go in and you pick up the paper together, right? You're going to thousands of different locations mm-hmm. to pick up, and then you're going to millions of different locations yeah. to to deliver. And you have no idea because the companies aren't going to give you the roles of the names of the people and their phone numbers, um, obviously, right? Uh, that you know, like, how, how do you even begin to sort of collect people? And get the word out, right? Like I know that you talked about they were building WhatsApp networks, right? Um, but still, like I imagine that the number of people who are engaged in that type of behavior, when compared to the sixty thousand plus people who are working in this yeah. industry, is probably somewhat small, right? So, like, how, how do you how do you start to how do you even start to organize a, a group of people like this? Like I was thinking about it while you were talking, and I was like, this it seems yeah. impossible. <laughs> It's challenging, um, and and we're, I mean, to be honest, we're still building that infrastructure. But the approach we've been using is pretty much neighborhood by neighborhood, um, because most deliveristas work in certain neighborhoods like Astoria, you know, Chelsea. Right. Um, so our organizing approach has been doing it neighborhood by neighborhood, um, and using their own neighbor like network channels they've been building, expanding their own network channels. Um, and keep using the language they've been using, which is the solidarity language. Um, and 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 it's something that we're we're looking to expand. But you said it; it's very challenging because um, language is a big challenge. As you said, there's the liberistas that you know not everybody speaks English. Um, you know there is um, South Asian, East Asian. Uh, there's trust issues still among them. Um, and we're using solidarity. That's why we're doing a lot of buy tune-ups um, for all deliveristas and using the buy tune-ups as a way to bring workers together. Or, you know, we're bringing different foods um, as a way to share culture as well. Um, and it's it's very challenging. But at the same time, it's, it's a great opportunity because it's a community that hasn't been organized. Um, so every thing we do is very new even to them because, you know, they recently arrived. Um, Many of them have not been exposed to work organizing in this country. Um, And many of them come from indigenous communities or rural communities um, with different experiences that sometimes brings them together or also becomes a challenge. Um, But the fact that we are doing neighborhood by neighborhood, it allows workers 
of our approach at least to bring them together because because even though they don't they're not working with the same apps they are working in the same neighborhood and delivering from the same restaurants i you know i can you give a little bit for our listeners and you know for me as well you know can you get just a little bit of logistical questioning that i have which is right so we now have this minimum salary how do you um you know, I'm sh- the company's obviously opposed this happening, right, to a large extent. The city council has passed this legislation. Adams has amended it, but he ultimately passed it, and he said this is a this is a good thing, right? He, I think, he said basically, um, you know, sure. delivery workers are the lifeblood of the city, and you know, um, like like I, I I read his speech, and I was like, well, I don't know, you know, he seems to be. It's not the worst speech, you know. He came around, <laughs> yeah. but. <laughs> How do you enforce that, right? Like, um, yeah. was there threats from these companies? Hey, we're just not going to operate in New York City anymore. You know, if if this is ha- if this is happening, it has this. Uh, you know, is it something that shows up in the people's payments when they come out? Like, how how does that work? Um, I actually don't even fully understand how gig workers get paid, right? Like, um, and and how I I've talked to a few of them, and it just seems like for each app it's a little bit different, and for Uber it's a little bit different than other places, but um. Yeah, like how how what how, what is enforcement like? You know, like how and and how how do people actually sort of start to collect this money? Um, yeah. Well, the big difference and what workers are going to see is um, a a their their hourly paid that is going to be reflecting on their app. Most mm-hmm. deliveristas get paid directly to their bank accounts, um, and what they're going to see with this new minimum pay is. Uh, two methods of payment. It's pretty much depending on how the company chooses to pay. Um, there is companies that can choose to pay by hour, um, which we mostly believe is going to relay because right now the only company that pays per hour in the city of New York is Relay, which is the smallest company. Um, and they now pay, I think, $12 an hour. So the company will have to start paying deliveristas um, $17.96 plus they cannot use tips as as a formal to compensate the hourly pay. The other method of payment is um, 50 to 53 cents a minute from the moment they start, um, they accept the delivery to the moment they complete the delivery. And they're going to, workers are going to see a significant increase in the base pay, um, uh, which means that a delivery that might take 30 minutes um, they might they actually going to end up getting paid fifteen dollars an hour. If a delivery got completed in an hour, they'll get paid twenty nine dollars and ninety six cents. Um, they will see a huge increase because what they're getting now um, for GrabHop, DoorDash, and Uber, um, when they do one delivery that might last thirty minutes, most deliveristas may see a three dollar four dollar pay by the company. So we're talking about a significant pay increase. Um, And the reality, the other question is, you know, this is a huge, this will have a huge economic impact on workers. And what the companies have been arguing is that $19.96 or 53 cents a minute, um, it's too extreme. Um, And they will keep on, you know, scaring consumers by claiming that, you know, it will raise prices, the other, they would say, you know, um, that um, to deliveristas will continue to say that they will see less deliveries or 
will continue to say, you know, that they will see less money. But the reality is that they don't tell, you know, the public that they force workers to spend close to fifteen, seventeen thousand dollars a year just on operating cost. And the other one, they don't tell the public nor workers that they're not getting any benefits that they should be getting uh, when they're doing this work. So the fear they're spreading is basically that you're going to destroy this industry because you're going to make the delivery so expensive that nobody's going to use it. No one will order. Yeah. I, for example, recently, because actually last night, two nights ago, because I was at home alone with a six-month-old baby, and I had finally put the baby down, and I was like, I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to order Taco Bell. And I'm going oh to use- <laughs> but I can't leave the house because my wife was in L.A., and it was like um, – and it was, you know, it was Taco pretty, exp- it was pretty expensive. And then I looked at all the separate, I usually don't order food from these apps, but um, I looked at all the stuff and it was, you know, like it was so opaque where the money went to, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like, and what I assumed was basically just that the restaurants are putting a higher price on this and that the apps are basically mm-hmm. taking a lot of this money. But there was one thing that was very specifically to the city that I live in that was a charge that was like specific to that. So is that, is that how mm-hmm. like it will function in New York city and how it'll look in New York city? And that, um, and that their, their argument is like, we have to figure out a way to make money. And if we're paying you guys this amount, then we're just going to have to charge the consumer this amount. Um, like that's the argument they're making, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're making an argument that it's economical, economically unsustainable, which right. is true. Um, in New York City, the recent report shows that the market is going to grow by 35%. So that's that's a huge increase. Um, second one is they are making a lot of money. Um, if they're not making a smart business decision, that's one versus um, actually not making profit. Most of these companies have been in business for years in New York. Um, and they're expanding their market share, not only from food to groceries to um, you know, this medicine, now weed, um, <laughs> you name it, right? Pet stores, they're delivering from <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> everything, yeah. So, so the market is growing, you know, they are making huge investments. They are seeing revenues. I think they just need to pay workers and, and do their math to make sure that when they're making that profit, they're sharing it with workers. Um and, and it's doable, you know, during the pandemic, they were actually paying good money to workers to incentivize to do this work. Right. Mm-hmm. They can do it now. Yeah. Oh, so has that changed then? That was, I'm sorry, that was another question I had, which was that, remember, I, I remember talking to a delivery worker during that period of time. And he said that, like, the companies were basically, in, this was during the height of the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know, like the, like May, March or April and May. And he said that the pay was actually quite good just because nobody wanted to do it the bonus and he yeah. he had a real like nihilistic vision of life and he was like well i don't even really care so you know i'll just go do it you know yeah. um, like i think that he basically didn't believe covid was real you know but he was saying that he made a lot of money during that period of time so like th- that's changed now then right like that 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 period that flush period is over yeah, I mean, companies during the pandemic were, were paying extra and doing bonuses, incentivizing workers right. to do this work. Um, and that's why many deliveries have said, if you could afford 
before you can right <laughs> right, right. So the business yeah. is still good because consumers habits haven't really changed that much like i feel like everyone's ordering more than they used you know it's like, oh yeah i mean it's yeah. it's i i find myself really you know kind of grossed out by the the whole thing just because it's so expansive now and it's so opaque you know and mm-hmm. it's the one thing that is clear to me is that the person who is making the least on this is the person who's delivering this stuff, you know, and um, it feels like there's so little regulation in the space because it grew so quickly and because these tech companies have so much influence. Um, And yeah, I don't know. I think uh, I watch a lot of, uh, I watch a lot of poker online and, you know, the DoorDash founder once a week is playing poker for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, really? Yeah. On YouTube. And I'm just like, First of all, don't you have something better to do? You know, like it, you're running this giant company. And secondly, like this is gross, you know, wow. like and he every time like it's always the joke is always like, oh, Stanley just lost like six hundred thousand dollars, but he's a billionaire so he can afford it. And so like that kind of makes the arguments yeah. a lot less like tenable for me. I'm just like you spend your time in full view of the public gambling hundreds of thousands you're not even he's not even good at poker you know he just does it because he's a rich guy and the guys that want to play with him because he was going to lose a lot of money it doesn't matter to him but yeah it's a it's a difficult proposition when the founders are all billionaires and are generally checked out and then to basically say well we're you know the business can't survive it's that is wild yeah yeah yeah, and they can afford it. That I mean, they're making billions of dollars, yeah. right? Right. Um, and they're expanding their market share to deliver pretty much everything. Right. Um, and and you know, we we pretty much have normalized ordering online. It's been mm-hmm. part of our day to day lives. I was reading some comments from consumers who said, "Well, I'm a disabled. You know, I rely on delivery. Yeah. Right. Um, I can't go out." For sure. um, there's a lot of seniors that, you know, live in apartments, especially in New York, um, that live in the t- 10th floor, fourth floor, that delivery, it's, it's so essential for people's lives now these days. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why fire smokes was just example, people fear going out in order online. Um, you know, the other one is now people are working from home <laughs> as yeah. well. So ordering food has been part of our day to day lives. Um, and if the companies want to keep operating in New York, they have to treat workers with respect and dignity and actually pay a living wage. My last question here is, you know, how much of the, uh, you know, like in terms of the e-bike question and the maintenance and, and how reliant New York City is upon that, how much of the political fight going forward do you think is about, is going to be around that method of transportation? Because I know that there's, some questions about fires that it might be causing, right? There's some questions about safety, um, pedestrian safety, but also safety for the riders themselves, right? The city is, I don't know. I know a lot of people bike around in New York City. I used to bike every day from Williamsburg to Times Square. And and then I got in a crash and it was, you know, I got pretty. And so, you know, I, I have some experience biking a lot in New York City. It's not great. The infrastructure is a lot better than it used to be, right? But like, how much how much of the concerns of the workers there are about like sort of e bike infrastructure and e bike legislation? 
Well, every deliverista's uh, concern is safety, right. which is linked to the city's infrastructure. A lot of most accidents that deliveristas face on the streets, it's because of traffic crimes, right? Um, or because uh, their area where they were delivering, um, there is no real bike protected uh, right. lane. Right. Um, so the reality in New York is that the city of New York really needs to adapt and all great upgrade their infrastructure to meet the, the this new workforce that has been so essential to New York City. So we need more bike protected like bike lanes. We need more bike lanes. We need charging stations. Uh, we need parking, e-bike parking stations. So that's something that we have been fighting for. Um, we're, that's why we started a partnership with the city um, of New York, the mayor Adams, actually, and the Senator Schumer to start building the first deliverista hubs that will have charging stations. We're working with charging uh, stations for the bikes, right? Yeah, bike. right, right. So that avoids some of the fire questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 And these fires are happening not big. I mean, it, most of the fires in the city of New York, um, a deliverista would say it's happening because we don't have a safe place to charge our right. batteries. Right. And then the other one is, you know, we have been supporting legislative initiatives to transition to a new era of safe charging, I mean, safe e-batteries. Um, and we're now advocating for a battery swap program as well. Um, but we also strongly believe that, you know, there, this is like a holistic approach where we need city government, we need to hold apps responsible, and we need to make sure that workers are part of that conversation. Right, because the effect, the ripple effects of this basic revolution and what happened in the last three years and the way that people order things and, the, and all these new, like it just, like the apps aren't going to do anything about it, nor can they, like they can't build a bike lane, you know? And yeah. so then the city, unless it's like this thing seems like it could be like privatized hell where everything falls. I was going to say, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know? want Uber to own my street. So, <laughs> right. No, I know. So it's so strange. It's like, you know, it, it is actually heartening for me to hear that Adams, despite, you know, other problems that I might have with him, feels at least somewhat responsive about this, right? Because it just seems like the city has changed because of he this, had a lot obviously. Of pressure. Yeah, totally. right. And um, the city has to adjust to this, and that probably does mean things like safe charging stations. It probably does mean things like uh, protected bike lanes, um, or even just into you know just taking some of the traffic off streets and allowing delivery use uh, workers to use them because you know the amount of space that you need to have these cars go through compared to however many bikes you could fit in these places is, you know, like it's, it's, it's not even comparable. Mm -hmm. Like you could have six bikes for each car in in the same space. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Is that also yeah. like that bike tune app thing that is that related to repairs? Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the deliverista hub is, it's a, you know, a concept that brings charging yeah. stations, bike tune apps, brings nice. resources yeah. to workers, casework. Um, it's 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 something that we, we started building based on the necessity and the needs mm -hmm. of the liberalistas that, you know, and pretty much Senator Schumer has been championing. And as you said, right, right. I mean, this, this is the first mayor that I see super committed to making um, the city more bike friendly. Um, and, Since and Bloomberg. <laughs> Oh man, 
<laughs> yeah, well, the Blasio was pretty anti e-bikes, right? And it was like that uh, was a fight. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just have one quick last question, Leah, which is like a little bit more of a personal one, but the attacks on Workers Justice Project and on you were really ferocious and it got really personal and I'm sure it was like very, very difficult for you to get through that period. And I, I, a lot of our listeners are involved in like social movement works and organizing and stuff. And I'm just curious if you have thoughts or reflections on that, like you've been doing this over a decade, are you still going to do it even after this past year? Like, how are you feeling? Are you okay? Um, you know, what, what does that mean as a worker organizer to go through something like that? Well, thank you for asking. I think very few people have asked about uh, how I'm doing and, you know, having that moment of, of support, um, especially after we went through a big, I would say, campaign against the organization, against uh, me and myself, mm-hmm. and even attacks against some of the leaders because they really wanted to isolate them so they don't keep on organizing um, you know, it, it was a very painful moment, I think, for, for most leaders and most uh, most of us in the campaign, because I think the biggest challenge is that um, the companies managed to put workers against workers. Yeah. So a lot of these attacks actually came from workers themselves who were part of the movement, uh, who started this organizing and all of a sudden turned their backs mm-hmm. into not just the organization, but turned their backs into the entire organizing against the minimum pay. And we saw workers who once said, we want a minimum pay to go into the next day, say, we don't, we don't really need it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and it, it was painful. It's been a moment of, 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 of a lot of, I would say, healing as well to try to understand that this is not a fight that really came from workers. It really came from the companies. Um, and we won. Um, I think that, that, that has been also a, a a moment that has kept us going because we we prove that you know workers do have power and worker organizing and workers around around the country um, have power um, and we are committed to keep on organizing uh, we're not stopping um, I think one moment of reflection for me was that uh, you know. I think I was talking to one of the organizers that has been providing us a lot of support and said, you know, when when organizations sometimes like us are under attack, sometimes we're left alone to fight it alone. And I almost felt like WJP was was left alone in the movement to pretty much have this battle by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And a few people on the left and in workers' rights and a workers' center movement really took a stand with us. And I think yeah. that's something that I, I would, I think I would love to, to see more. And that's also a moment of reflection for, for, I think for other movements, right? How we can show more solidarity when um, worker centers and labor organizations are under attack can really show up and fight back. Um, I feel like Los Deliberistas Unidos and Workers Justice Project pretty much want this fight by ourselves um and 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 that was i think that was painful and that's but also that gives me a moment of reflection that there is a lot of more conversations that need to be have with with other worker centers and and labor organizations about how we can show up more for those that are in the front lines having really huge battles that will define the future of the labor movement 
Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, that, that. I think that's a great place for us to end. I mean, thank you for coming on. I think that the work, I was very excited about this conversation because, you know, I think that outside of unions, which are obviously very important, the type of organizing that needs to happen for the next few decades is obviously in these spaces, right? Because mm -hmm. these companies are just going to, as much as they can, just stop having employees, basically, right? Totally. I, I mean, <laughs> and do um, like everything in our lives. <laughs> everything is going to be that way, you know? Like it was very enlightening to hear you know, the ways in which you can actually do this, because sometimes I think there's like a doomerism around it where it's like, yeah, you just can't organize gig workers. <laughs> it's just so hard. You know? <laughs> um, but it's the it, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Leah. No, thank you for having me and um, excited for what happened and will continue to happen, I think, across the country, because this is just the beginning. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our show. As always, we you can help support us for $5 a month at patreon.com slash ttsgpod or at goodbye.substack.com. You'll get access to our Discord server where we organize all sorts of local meetups and talk about a wide variety of topics. Uh, yeah, we just had a picnic. Um, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't there, but Tammy was there. And, and, and did Andy go show up? Andy came. Oh, so Andy was there too. It was yeah. good to see him. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we missed you. If you'd like to contact us, it's good, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. And thanks as always to our producer, May Shots. And uh, we will see you next week. One day you'll hear it in your